Thank you for listening to this Podcast One production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Hi there. I'm Laura Wasser. And if anyone knows how much divorce sucks, it's me. I've been practicing family law for over 25 years, and I've worked on thousands of divorces, from the top of the food chain all the way down to my very first case, which was my own divorce when I was 25. It has become my life's mission to destigmatize divorce and create a community around what is already a difficult time. We call it the evolution of dissolution. So welcome to the Divorce Sucks Podcast, where we talk about breaking up, getting divorced, and moving on. Good morning. Good morning. We've talked the whole night through. Good morning. Good morning to you. Good morning, and welcome to the Divorce Sucks Podcast. This is the Sunny Side Up Report, and I am Laura Wasser, your host, I'm with Tommy. my with my pushy, plucky sidekick. That's me, Johnny Rains. Hello, everyone. Lord. Anyway, the Sunny Side Up Report is where Johnny and I um, go through the curated list of stories that we found around the web and tell you what's going on in the world of marriage, divorce, relationships, dating, etc. Our first story is from our friends at The Telegraph UK by Rowan Pelling. What is this, Johnny? So this is a clickbaity title like so many that we see. Are you in a ships-in-the-night marriage crisis and will therapy really help? But actually what the article is about is this new genre in pop culture, which is called split-lit, which is basically like movies about people breaking up and the demise of a relationship instead of... You know, books. Rom-coms? Right. <gasps> I see. Split Interesting. Lit. So, a, mo- a marriage story. I'm going to totally, like, For plug example. this all <laughs> fall, because I'm so into it. Okay, so that's the new... By the way, since we're talking about new things that are coming up, I read an article this morning about subwaying. Okay, this oh. was on D- dmarge.com. Is that the D-train? Subwaying is the dating trend, and it is... Um, <laughs> What's he laughing at? I don't know. All right, so subwaying. Some of these things sound so sexual, but subwaying is... Um, Maybe that's what he's laughing Okay, so again, Nikki Goldstein says subwaying is on the rise, but what the heck is it? Subwaying is the infuriating new dating trend you can't get mad about. And <laughs> evidently, um, there's like a little meme on here that says, Hey boy, are you the subway? Because you shut down randomly with little explanation. Ah, I, I, I think it it's like ghosting, but okay. apparently you're not supposed to be able to get upset about it. So... Subwaying, another another interesting. Should we call it? <laughs> really m- glad I'm not we, out there. Can we call it metroing out here in LA, where we don't really? Yeah, except for I don't think we're supposed to be saying that our metro oh. that we've waited so long for and spent so much on and been so inconvenienced by is going to be undependable. Good point. Okay, um, next. Yes. Next, eleven mind-blowing marriage truths from divorce attorneys. So this kind of article always makes me want to ask you. What are some mind-blowing marriage truths that you might have come across in your, uh, you know, many years of service to the uh, married? Don't spend all the money. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> no, I, look, you know mine. Mine are stay in therapy, stay, you know, have date night, sex begets sex. I mean, I say the same thing all the time. This is an interesting one where they say, um, put your spouse before your kids. Hmm. This may not be the most popular piece of advice, especially for parents, but after watching countless people get divorced because they allowed themselves to slowly drift apart over the years, I honestly believe it's true. We are all busy these days. It's far too easy to put your job, your house, your activities, and your kids before your spouse. Don't do it. 
So I don't, not going to opine on that. I just think it's an interesting one to say. And I have had plenty of people come in and say he or she, generally she, puts the kids before me always. And then what happens is the kids go away to school and now you're left with somebody that you either don't right. like very much or you just don't even know anymore. That's so written by Joetta Pauline at BoredPanda.com. Next. The real life divorce stories behind marriage story. Speaking of marriage story, oh, yes. um, this is uh, news from the Toronto Film Festival where the Noah Baumbach project dazzled. And there's Oscar buzz, Laura. I'm very excited about that. We're hearing really good things about this movie. And like I said, I do know Noah. Our kids go to school together and we would love to have him come on and and talk about his experiences filming and then promoting this movie. So when he's back from the... uh, the circuit, the festival yes, circuit. Yes. Maybe we can get him to come in and meet with us. Can I gush just a little bit more before you, you move on? Uh, because if you must. In this article, which, as I brought up before, uh, talks about the Oscar buzz, one of the reasons that it's getting such Oscar buzz is, for starters, our lady, Laura Dern, indeed, who gives a monologue that is going to be gift until the end of time, according to this article. Um, she's very obviously playing a version of another Laura. Is she not? Laura Wasser the uber-famous Hollywood divorce attorney who has had a client list as long as the lines outside Roy Thompson Hall these days. They go on and on and on, but they talk about Laura Dern's performance and uh, really credit her with being part of the reason why they're getting such Oscar buzz. Oh, good. Go, Laura. (laughs) I also wanted to talk about, you all know, if you listen to this show, that I am an avid reader of the New York Times Sunday Style section. I just love it. And there's so much stuff in there for anybody that's interested in relationships. So one, our friend Louise Ravkin, who I'm also hoping to have on the show at some point, has a column called Unhitched. And what she does is she speaks to couples and they tell stories of their relationships from romance vows to divorce life afterwards. So in this last week's uh, Sunday Styles, Ira Pinkney, 76, oh, sorry, Ina Pinkney, 76, and Bill Pinkney, 83, met and married in 1965 when both lived in New York City. So they get married in the summer of 65. They divorce in the spring of 2001. Mm. Um, He was 30 and she was 22, and now he's 83 and she's 76. This is also a mixed-race couple. He's African-American. She's Caucasian. It's a very interesting story about two New Yorkers living in New York. Highly recommend Unhitched, particularly this one, Two Dreams, Two Different Paths, Then Divorce. They still keep in touch, and it's mostly via telephone because they don't live in the same city anymore. But I just, I love it. I love this column, and I I love making it part of our Sunny Side Up report. Absolutely, and that's like real life split lit right yes. there. Our last story, speaking of people making the most of their life after divorce, Adele, the singer, is reportedly perky as hell after her divorce and is ready to release new music. Shannon Barber from Cosmopolitan tells us about it. Oh, go Adele. Next up, Jason Crowley, the man who is trying to save the finances of divorcees one investment at a time. A wise person once said, the less you have, the easier divorce is. Whether you live in a community property state, which includes Arizona, California, Idaho, Louisiana, Nevada, New Mexico, Texas, Washington, and Wisconsin, and is an option in Alaska, or one of the other 41 states in which the courts use equitable distribution as the mode or formula of dividing marital property, however much you have, you need to inventory it. 
And one of the first things you'll need to inventory is your money. Under the community property formula, with the exception of gifts and inheritances, spouses are regarded as equal co-owners of everything earned or acquired during the marriage. This is the case even if just one of the spouses did the acquiring or incurred the debts, and even if one is listed as owner of the property or asset. In equitable distribution states, by contrast, a 50-50 split is not always the goal. Instead, the goal is a fair division of everything earned or acquired during the marriage, except, again, gifts and inheritances. So what does fair mean? That's something we usually say. That's not a word we use in divorce. But in any event, the bottom line is your finances will be impacted by divorce. Don't be scared. Today on Divorce Sucks, we're going to help you prepare. Joining us in the studio to answer some questions about the intersection of divorce and finance is one of the select few financial professionals to hold the Chartered Financial Analyst, CFA, Certified Financial Planner, CFP, and Certified Divorce Financial Analyst, CDFA credentials. He is a member of the Forbes Financial Council and the managing partner at Divorce Capital Planning, a divorce financial planning and financial mediation firm. He's also the founder of the Survive Divorce website and co-founder and advisor at Divorce Mortgage Advisors. Jason Crowley, welcome to Divorce Sucks. Thanks for having me, Laura. I know I just gave all of your qualifications and all that, but tell us a little bit from your bio on divorce capital planning and what your academic background is. Brag a little bit about yourself. T- tell us what your mom would tell us. How's that? <laughs> We'll be here all day. If you okay. want to hear what my mom would say. Yeah, so I, I grew up in the Bay Area. I uh, went to college at UC Santa Barbara and have a background in business economics and accounting, and then always kind of knew that I wanted to get into finance from an early age. My father actually has been at Morgan Stanley for about 47 years or so. And so from the time I was seven years old, I, that was when I made my first You're kind like of Alex investment. Keaton? Decision. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> More like Rain Man. But. Okay. <laughs> When I was when I was seven years old, I remember looking at a, a statement, and my dad was telling me that my Morgan Stanley account was paying more interest than my Bank of America account. And so I immediately withdrew all of my thousand dollars that I had saved up in the account. When you were seven? It. Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of lemonade stands going. I at, guess at an early age, and so I moved it all into another another my Morgan Stanley account. Got a a letter from the CEO of Bank of America saying that he wanted my money back. And that was kind of where my passion for money started and grew from there. So when I graduated from college, I ended up going into um, investment banking and did a brief stint there. And then I transitioned into private wealth management. In, in kind of the course of the business, you're looking for growing and getting new clients. And our minimum was a million dollars of investable assets. I was 22. All of my friends had $10,000. All of my family That was friends, your rich friends, right? Those were my rich friends. Yeah. And all of my family friends were my dad's clients. Right. So that's kind of how I ended up getting into the divorce niche was finding something where I could really become a thought leader and an expert in and really add value in a, in a real niche area. And so that's how I kind of uncovered some of these other credentials and started pursuing some of that professional development. So you were around the same age I was, maybe even a little bit younger than I was when I got into the divorce field. Did you find it difficult being a young person? Were people constantly saying to you, you don't understand what I'm going through, you don't know what I'm going through, you couldn't possibly get it? You know, I I found it not as difficult on that side as I did on the wealth management side because there's really so few financial professionals that are focused in divorce. Got it. And so as a result, I really was able to have kind of a, a unique expertise that kind of differentiated me and there weren't a lot of other options that people had. Do you find that you worked with or currently work with more men or women or 
Yeah, I would say probably about 60 to 70% women Yeah, for the okay. most part. We're doing a lot of work kind of jointly as a neutral. And uh-huh. so in those cases, I'm obviously working with both. But on the clients where I'm working individually with one spouse, I would probably say 60 to 70% women. People ask me this all the time, so I'm going to pass along the question to you. What's the difference in your opinion between or in your experience between men and women and how they approach divorce? Good question. I would say for the most part, I find that women are a little bit more emotional mm-hmm. in terms of their attachment to certain assets. Okay. Um, and, and particularly the house. I would actually say that I find probably men have a little bit more of an emotional attachment to a pension. Okay. And so that, from at least from a financial perspective, that tends to be the focus. Also, at least, at least outwardly in terms of what they say, I find that women tend to really focus on what's best for the kids. Mm-hmm. And it's not that men don't. It's just not necessarily as front and center in terms of how they communicate about it. And are breadwinner women different in their approach? Are they more like what we would generally like generically term male? Yeah, I think I think there is a lot of a lot more similarities across kind of income than there is and profession than there is based purely on gender. Right. Yeah. And are you finding that you're do you have more clients that are female breadwinners? And and are you finding that there is a change in how that approach occurs? Yeah, I think it's. It's definitely trending in that direction, and I'll admit that that's probably one of the biases that I have is sometimes I look at things a little bit differently when it's a female breadwinner and a stay-at-home dad, and so that's something where I really have to kind of check that at the door. I'm the same way. Yeah. I mean, as a litigator, sometimes I'll use it to my advantage, but for the most part, I, I don't believe that we should be looking at it like that, so I am trying to change my perspective. I just signed up and became a follower of your Instagram, which is at divorce, which I just love. The one that we got yesterday was, I wish you could last as long in bed as you do in an argument. Was that it, Johnny? I wish you lasted as long in bed as you do in an argument. I love that. That that to me rivals, do you want to be right or do you want to be married? I just want to have more time in the sack. All right. So let's let's talk about the intersection of divorce and finance. What is your relationship with money? Yeah, so I think in terms of, I think that's one of the most important things that I think people really need to focus on as they start going through the divorce process is really starting to kind of reflect and have some of that self-awareness about what is their relationship with money. I find that a lot of people, what their relationship or how they approach money really is influenced in a lot of ways based on how they were raised. Mm-hmm how they grew up, what their experiences were. And what their experience was in the marriage. I mean, I feel like a lot of stay-home moms or dads, um, or let's just call them non-working. I don't know that they're staying home, frankly. In fact, a lot of these people are out all day shopping and working out and whatever else they're doing. But they don't consider it their money. They kind of feel like they've got nothing to lose. It's a bottomless pit, so I might as well litigate. I might as well drag this out. Whereas the breadwinners will often go, this is costing us money. We've got to get this resolved and take it from a much more business and transactional standpoint. Do you find that to be the case? Yeah, I do. And I think a lot of that it comes from a place of fear uh-huh. and a lack of understanding about what the financial situation is, that it is not a bottomless money pit. And so as a result, they really have to think through and understand exactly what they have. And if they do a better, I think when people do a better job up front of really understanding their own psychology Um, their own limitations in terms of how they think and approach money, that positions them to hopefully be able to approach the financial side on a more unemotional basis or at least compartmentalize your thinking. Because I don't think it's really critical that you remove the emotions. Right. 
you should have your own kind of priorities and define what's important to you and why it's important. But you also need to kind of think through and understand what is the most important, look at it objectively and unemotionally, and then layer in how what's important to you in terms of is it can I afford to keep the house? Right. You know, how do you approach some of those different types of things? Totally agree. Because if you make those emotional decisions, all of a sudden now you've got the house. You've got the house. You've got the house. I don't want this house anymore. It's costing me a fortune. It's all these memories of what it was like to live here when we were happy as a family. Do you counsel people or do you tell people that they should be in therapy to deal with some of the more emotional stuff so that the transactional and financial stuff can be dealt with a little bit more compartmentalized? Yeah, I think it's, I think it's really, really critical for people to have support system mm-hmm. and for them to use their different professional team in the way that they're best equipped. Right. So talk to your attorney about legal stuff. Talk to your financial or forensic about financial stuff. Talk to your therapist about emotional stuff and communication challenges. And really use each one of those in as much of a silo as possible. There's no reason to spend four, five, six, eight hundred, nine hundred dollars an hour on an attorney to talk to you about emotional counseling and things because of that nature. we're usually pretty fucked up ourselves. On that note, what is your relationship with divorce attorneys, with family law attorneys? Uh, we're working really closely. So I work in terms of kind of in litigation, in mediation, and in collaborative. So in, in mediation and collaborative, I'm work, often working kind of as an integral part of those teams. Right. On the litigation side, oftentimes there's a forensic that's involved as more of the kind of the litigation strategy and litigation support, and we're focused a little bit more behind the scenes doing some more of the financial hand-holding and divorce financial planning. And then if there's stock option or RSU issues, then we may be involved in more of a litigation support role as well. What's divorce mortgage planning, Jason? Yeah, so divorce mortgage planning, I think the mortgage is really the biggest afterthought in divorce. Mm-hmm. So what what I find happens is most people, they think through the house, they decide what they want to do with the house, and then they try to make that happen. I want to keep the house, and then they'll try and figure out a way to do a buyout or what kind of assets can I trade. But really what you have to keep in mind is that the mortgage is a constraint. And so in most cases, the out spouse, the spouse that's leaving the house is going to want their name removed from the mortgage. Right. And so we need to think up front. Usually what happens is they get to the end, they reached an agreement. There's a marital settlement agreement that says wife's going to keep the house and <laughs> wife has to refinance within six months. And lo and behold, she's not able to. Right. The bank is like, yeah, not so much. We would prefer to have the person that's working and earning the money on on our, you know, on our on the hook. Exactly. And so now they're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place of do we go back and do I relitigate this issue? Do I force a sale? Maybe there's a joint interest in keeping the house. And so that can all be avoided if upfront we take a look and say, what are the mortgage constraints? What is the feasibility of being able to maintain or qualify for a refinance? What is the cost going to be associated with that? Um, And is that cash out a source of liquidity that can be used actually for buyout funds? The other thing that I think is really interesting about the, the mortgage planning process is in most cases when you have someone who's going who's not going through a divorce, your financial situation is your financial situation. Right. So as long as you don't go out and buy a new Porsche and accrue some different debts, your debt to income ratio kind of is what it is. But in divorce, we have support and we have asset division. And so the assets that you keep may influence what your debt to income ratio is. And we have opportunities to shift spousal and child support up or down in order to kind of define 
what meets those mortgage qualifying objectives. And so it gives us a little bit more planning where we can actually try and find, um, try and be able to take this mortgage and use it as a problem to be solved. And I always find that in terms of settling cases, the more that we can take both both parties and try and reshift that narrative from tug of war to mm-hmm. a problem to be solved, the better we're able to approach that and kind of work through tough issues. Tax changes that began this year as a result of the tax reform with regard to deductions of support and some of the mortgage interest deductions that we in California no longer get anymore, good or bad? Long term, I think the the spousal support one's a big one for the at least for the clients that I tend to work with. Oftentimes, there's one breadwinner. Yep. And so in those situations, there were times where it was really a forty to fifty thousand dollar a year tax savings if you had someone that was making no money and someone that was making significant money. So that's a huge loss yep. to the family there, and it's a huge loss at a time that they can least afford it. Yep. Because I know one of the things that I find is a lot of people think that if you have a lot of money, then then money's not an issue. It's actually even more of an more issue. More money, more problems. Exactly. And so so that's something I think that people need to kind of take into consideration is now we're separating households. We have double the expenses or one and a half X the expenses, and we oftentimes have no more income, at least in the short term. So that's a big loss there. The mortgage interest and property tax changes, I don't think are a huge issue for the majority of people. For the most part, you were grandfathered in, mm-hmm. in terms of the mortgage interest deduction, and they did raise and increase the standard deduction. So for the most part, that offsets, and particularly here in California with everything that we had and the changes in the AMT alternative minimum tax, though most people that I found that were in a expensive house that had high property taxes and a big mortgage we're already in AMT, and right. so I think that was a little bit overblown by the media if you really peel back the layers of the onion. Got it. Okay, so now here's something. Oftentimes, people will write into the Divorce Sucks podcast, and they really like hearing about some of these things that you and I might be like, really? But RSU, so dividing stock options and restricted stock units, and those of you who think, oh, now they're going to just talk about things that rich people care about, not true, especially some of you younger listeners, some of you people who have startup companies and not maybe a lot of cash available, but a lot of it has to do with stock options and restricted stock units. A lot of my colleagues, I start glazing over when we talk about RSUs. Explain it to to me and to our listeners like we really are not very smart people. We need to understand this, and this this is our chance. So, guys, listen up. Yeah, so I'm from Silicon Valley, so everyone has stock options and RSUs. If the kids act up, you take away their stock options and RSUs. It's it's the way that stock options and RSUs work. Stock options are basically a grant of stock in the company – you have the right to buy a share of stock for a specified price, an exercise price. RSUs, on the other hand, are a grant of stock or units. It's basically an unfunded promise by the company that they will issue stock in the future once certain vesting requirements are met. The, difference, the main difference between RSUs and stock options is there's, for RSUs, there's no exercise price. So when they vest, they're released to you and their shares of stock which means that no matter what the price of the stock is, there's going to be some value assuming that you stay at the company long enough 
for those RSUs to vest. And when you get those guys, when you get those because you are working for a company, that means, particularly in community property states, that your community property hours, your time to perform those services has been expended. So the RSUs, if made during the period of marriage, would be community property. And even in equitable distribution states, those are looked at as something that happened during the marriage. So I have so many people come to me at cocktail parties and say, I can't believe I gave up all the RSUs because he said they weren't worth anything. Or she said, this company's never going to be worth anything. And now look at it. And and she got all the RSUs. Keep this in mind. Okay. Keep telling us more. This is really good. Yeah. And so with, with RSUs, I think they're a lot more straightforward because there's really no timing element or there's no discretion by the employee as far as when they turn those options into stock. Whereas with RSUs, when they vest, they're released to you and they're fully taxable at vest. So RSUs are a lot more straightforward. For the most part, there's been an evolution where companies have kind of started to trend much more towards issuing RSUs than options. Why is that? Mainly due to some changes in the corporate accounting rules that that get a little bit complicated in some of the tax preference items related to what appears on the corporate balance sheets. Mm -hmm. So that's the main reason for the shift. Um, And so what I find is now stock options are, for the most part, limited to private companies, kind of pre-IPO startups, things of that nature, or high-level executives. Okay. And, and I think the big difference is a lot of times with stock options, they may be underwater. Okay. Where the current stock price is less than the exercise price or the same as the exercise price. And that's where we get into a lot of debates where the employee spouse says they're worth nothing. Right. And I have tried to buy them from them every single time for nothing, and I haven't and been accepted once. And is it true that companies often make employees sign something saying, if you get divorced, we don't want to be part of this. You can't give your your options to anybody else. Yes. They have yes. to stay with you, so you deal with it. I yeah. mean, I know we have one of those at our company. We don't want to be involved with somebody's ex, right. horrible ex. So that that is true sometimes, folks. You will get that, and so then you have to figure out a different way to equalize whatever the estate is as you're dividing it up. Sixty seconds. That's exactly how long this commercial lasts. You know what else you can do in about a minute? Get an offer for your car with True Car. That's right. In the amount of time it takes to floss your teeth, pet your dog, do a few sit-ups, or just listen to my voice, you can get the True Cash offer. Best of all, you can do it from your smartphone or home. Just go to True Car and simply enter your license plate number and watch how your car's details pop up. Answer a few questions and you'll get an accurate True Cash offer from a local True Car certified dealer. It's that easy. After that, you can bring your car in and they'll check it out with you together. You can ask questions and get the answers you need so there's no surprises. Then simply leave with your check or trade in your car for a new ride. So when you're ready to experience a better way to sell or trade in your car, check out True Car today. I'm Laura Wasser, the host of Divorce Sucks, and in practice, of course, wherever you live, you and your spouse are free to negotiate the division of your assets and liabilities your way, which you can do on itsovereasy.com without lawyers. Talking about money certainly may not be sexy, but these conversations should give each of you some clarity. And if you didn't speak about finances before you entered into your marriage, before you walked down the aisle again, you should do so. Work and home responsibilities, joint or separate accounts, budgets, vacation plans, retirement are all subjects which ought to be discussed. 
On today's show, we're speaking with certified divorce financial analyst Jason Crowley about divorce and finances. He is a nationally recognized divorce financial planning expert who has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and this week you can read his first article for us on the It's Over Easy Insights blog about Silicon Valley divorces. According to Sean Elder in his piece, How to Divorce Post-Startup for Town & Country Magazine, there's a correlation between startup culture and the failure of many marriages in tech. Jason, you're from the Bay Area and you work on the peninsula with the Technorati. What's your take on this? Yeah, I mean, I think Silicon Valley in particular has really evolved into a bit of a pressure cooker sort of environment. Um, I've grown up, I was born and raised in the Bay Area, so I've really kind of seen that evolution. And I think what happens in the entrepreneurial world is you have people that are kind of cut from a different cloth. Yes. They're working ungodly hours in the pursuit of building something that's bigger than themselves and trying to change the world. And so that kind of lends itself towards getting somewhat myopic, somewhat laser focused on what it is that you're doing. And and I think the other thing that's really important here is entrepreneurship in general is kind of a lonely place. Yes. I know I, I consider myself to be an entrepreneur and it's it's hard to relate to friends and family in terms of how I'm approaching things and and my mindset is very different. So I can't really necessarily relate to some of my friends and family in that regard. And I think when you're at a startup culture, that's even more pronounced. Right. So you really, really live and sleep and eat your startup and and nobody else understands what you're going through and it is hard to we should we should form a support group actually probably That'd, you and I can start it. Let's do oh, it. I'm so angry all the time. I'm like, why isn't anyone else working as hard as me? And so you really need to have a partner that's supportive of that. Right. You really need to have kind of a common shared vision for where your family is going. And I think what often happens is there's just a lack of communication between people where one person thinks this only lasts a year, the other person says it's going to go as long as it lasts, but that's never really said or communicated. And so there's no clear intentions behind it. Right. Time passes, things evolve. And next thing you know, now the communication has gotten even worse. There's less communication. And that's where things kind of start to fray. And again, we down here in SoCal have a lot of people in the entertainment industry. And, you know, you have these allowances that you make for artists and entertainers and these creative souls. And then up there, what I'm seeing is a lot of tech people, which they also have the same kind of issues in terms of communication, thinking with a different part of their brain, very laser focused, as you said. It's almost like when we have an actor that's getting into a role or leaving to go on location, tech they don't necessarily speak the same language as the rest of the people do. And I don't know how the relationships that are born in tech companies can more creatively evolve. Do you have any, I mean, again, I'm not asking a financial opinion. I'm just asking based on your impressions and being part of that culture, any ideas beyond having good communication skills and what we tell people, counseling, talk about it? I mean, frankly, I, I really think it just all starts and ends with, with communication. Uh-huh. Like in some cases, it's it's simple, but it's not easy. Right. And so I think that this is a classic example where really it just comes down to having those frank, open, honest conversations about where you are and where you want to be and seeing if those align. A lot of times the people that we're drawn to may not work out from that regard. And so you just need to have a conversation because if you are a true entrepreneur, it's going to be suffocating to not be living an entrepreneurial lifestyle. Right. And so that's not going to change. I know I've the other relationships that I've been in have, that haven't worked out, 
were purely based on or partially based on that reason because I was laser focused on work and anything that detracted me from that I looked at as a distraction so I really need someone that's going to be fully supportive there and I'm open about that but I think if you're not that's where you can get into trouble right so now that you open this door okay you're familiar with the interrogatories I'm familiar so you you did you, you, you teed this up for me Jason are you married single divorced or remarried those are only only options. Are you married, single, divorced, or other? I'm How check, about that? I'm checking a different box. Okay. Married-ish. Married-ish. So you're in a long-term partnership or you're separated? <laughs> are you on the good end of married-ish? The, or the, the good end. Okay. The good end. Okay. The good end. And what's your favorite breakup song? Uh, that's easy. Return of the Mac by Mark Morrison. Okay. Can we find that somewhere, Sean? What would you say to cheer up a friend going through a breakup? I think sometimes you got to get through it to get over it. Uh And so really trying to understand that there is a light at the end of the tunnel. The hardest thing when you're going through this is to have perspective. Because your world, especially if you're not the initiator, it feels like your world is ending. I think that's even more so the case that I find the most difficult situations are the stay-at-home mom or the stay-at-home dad. Because at least with the working spouse, they can kind of go back into they can throw all their energy into their career. Yes. If you're a stay-at-home mom or stay-at-home dad, your identity is really tied up in who you are as a wife or husband, who you are as a mom or dad, and that's, for the most part, it. Right. So your entire identity, all the it can really feel like the walls are kind of collapsing in on you. And so you need to have that perspective, and you need to, I think, go back to building a community of support group of people that you can talk to. Right. But also being very cognizant that in doing so, you and going back to the silo comment, that you're not using your friends and family for the financial or legal advice, right. but only for that kind of emotional support and trying to help them not just talk bad about the other person because that's counterproductive. Totally agree. I've been told many times as an insult that I'm too compartmentalized, and I always say it served me well. I love it. <laughs> All right. And finally, which rom-com could you watch on repeat? Jerry Maguire. Right? You've had me at hello. I agree. All right, Jason, thank you for flying into town today to share your financial wisdom and knowledge with us on Divorce Sucks. And I got to tell you guys, this has been a short interview, but we are tapping in to Jason, what he does. Everything that he does is stuff that you all should be interested in. Check out his article on our Insights blog. Look him up on our index. You will see him again on this show and on the It's Over Easy website because he is exactly the kind of a dude that we want to introduce to you guys and for us to be collaborating with. So remember this name. And Jason, tell our listeners where they can find you online and et cetera. So we already got the Instagram at divorce. We just like saying it. I just like (laughs) hearing you saying divorce. Okay, yeah. Also at Survive Divorce on Instagram. Um, And then in terms of websites, you can find, if you're looking for divorce financial planning or financial mediation, you can find us at divorcecapitalplanning.com. If you're looking for divorce mortgage planning or anything related to refinances or purchase loans, you can find us at divorcemortgageadvisors.com. And then just in terms of kind of an all-around resource and great information on law, on the laws and financial information, tax stuff, everything related to divorce on survivedivorce.com. And especially where financial matters are concerned, when it comes to dissolving a marriage, seek some advice, educate yourself, make sure you know what you're doing before you do it. This means disclose your assets and debts fully and factually, which is precisely what the discovery process is all about. 
I'm Laura Wasser. It's my job to know these things, and I try to do a good job. This is Divorce Sucks, and we'll be back next week with more of the stuff you need to know. Tell your friends and leave us a review at iTunes, and thank you for listening.